when I first started working on this, and I was really, really intensely working on because I was trying, because there are a lot of researchers out there, and very quite well-known researchers have been doing this for years, decades, decades. Yeah. So um, I spent a lot of time being really intensely engaged in the material, yeah. staying really, really late, looking through thousands of images, and it, it is impossible to not get emotionally bound up in what you're reading. Um, to kind of re-experience those things, especially if you're reading their diaries and their death certificates and what happened to them um, mm. and the hardships they went through. So I listened to a lot of Bob Marley. <laughs> I know it yeah, sounds so cliche, but I would put Bob Marley on while I yeah. was reading this stuff so I didn't get too wrapped up in it. Otherwise, it, my grandfather would say, this stuff tries to jump on your shoulder and come home with you. I used my social media channels to share a lot of what I was learning as I was going and a lot of the soldier stories that I was starting to pick up on. And it was really good sharing it with other people because in doing that and, and hearing and seeing their responses to that, it was quite gratifying but also helped share the load, so to speak, minimise the load, the emotional load of it. Yeah. The most rewarding thing is when I would when I would come across descendants of the soldiers through my social media contacts and realise that they had never seen this stuff at all. That, to me, was the most rewarding. It made all the late nights, being at the office till two in the morning kind of stuff worth it. It's just part of being a researcher. It's yeah. it's quite solitary work. Private Roy Delaney, he is, as I was talking about hardships and the scars of war, <clears throat> one of the things about being a researcher engaged in the World War I commemorative kind of um, uh, events that are happening at the moment is uh, a cautionary thing about not letting your work become the glorification of war and the glorification of the soldier. You want to be, it's a careful line to tread between being respectful of what these men went through and what they did, but also not um, confronting the bad things that come with war. So Roy is one of those soldiers that helps me reveal the ambiguities of World War I in terms of the scars. He enlisted in Gisborne, where he was living at that time, I think, in Te Karaka, but he was—he originally hailed from Wellington. Um, I'm not even sure, to tell you the truth, whether or not he was Māori. He was in the Māori contingent, and I've discussed it with Monty and both of us going, well, he wouldn't have been able to be—he wouldn't have been able to enlist in the Māori contingent if he wasn't Māori, or at least had some Māori descent, a heritage rather. So he had to put <clears> down, <throat> say, his iwi. No, I just—I suppose he would have had to have looked. It'll look a bit Māori. For me, obviously, he doesn't. Yeah, he? no, he looks no. very... Um, well, my, my people would say, komi komi. He looks very fair. But, hey, like I said, there were a yes. lot of men of mixed descent at that time. Um, but he was there. He, he enlisted. He went into the Māori contingent, and he went to Gallipoli. Um, again, I haven't been able to find diary entries that refer to Roy, and all I can go on is what I've read in his service record, but he was severely injured, severely wounded in um, Gallipoli by um, shelling, which ripped into his back. And he had massive spinal injuries, which um, caused partial paralysis mm. and massive shell shock. Now, at that time, we kind of, we're used to ideas of post-traumatic stress disorder or combat trauma now. 
you know there's a lot there's a bit of work around it people are a little bit more familiar with the what the um, repercussions of ongoing repetitive trauma what that has on the mind of a person but back in world war one shell shock as it was called then was such a new phenomenon it was um an illness that no one had seen before so they were starting to see all these men come back from war zones who were psychologically completely damaged inside just wrecked going through really unusual repetitive behaviors like um self-harm kind of stuff and alcoholism. oh yeah alcoholism violence in their families um, just not able to re-engage with the life post-war life um, but also kind of um uh, physiological kind of trauma like twitches and, mm. and, and not being able to walk and as a result of their wounds or shell shock. shell shock shell shock it was the psychological trauma which was causing this kind of physiological response now Roy Delaney he served right he was only 19 when he served, when he joined up and he served right to the end of World War One. and uh, he came back to New Zealand 19, early 1919 August 1919 he was arrested for the rape of a nine-year-old girl in Patone, and it was quite a vicious rape. Um, she had been um, separated from her young brother by a male assailant, taken to a park, and she had been beaten really, really badly, raped, and left there. So it was a horrific crime, a very horrific crime. And the newspapers at the time, um, yeah, it was just filled with all this kind of uh, vehemence about the the horror of what had happened to this little girl. Yeah. They called it the Petone outrage because it happened in Petone. Roy Delaney was the one who was identified as being that male assailant. He was arrested and put on trial, and his lawyer put up two forms of defence. The first one, no, it wasn't him, but there were so many witnesses that managed to identify him quite resolutely, and the little girl resolutely identified who he was. The second form of defence that the lawyer put up, which was quite late in the case, was that Roy had actually suffered quite horrific shell shock and was still suffering from the effects of it. An army doctor uh, was brought to stand up as a witness in the trial and um, he said, yes, I'm familiar with shell shock and I have seen men do really incredibly strange things as shell shock victims, like um, he describes seeing one man bang his head repeatedly against the pavement. Just inexplicable behaviour at that time. And he had also seen men who acted without absolutely no cause for repercussion or any sense of moral compass, so to speak. So the, the, you know, so given that the contemporary records of the contemporary kind of comment at the time was that it is possible that his actions were influenced by the fact that he has shell shock. So the doctor said, you know, that what happened to this little girl, um, you know, Roy's actions could have been a result of shell shock, but the court didn't allow it as an argument and um, he was convicted, uh, sentenced to 15 years hard labour and... Um, a very old-fashioned punishment of the cat o' nine tails being whipped by cat o' nine tails, which is a form of kind of almost the medieval form of whip, with um, little beads at the end of it, and those beads cut into the flesh. It's an old naval punishment, actually, um, and the purpose of it 
it was usually given to people who had done those kinds of crimes, crimes against children, because um, it leaves scars. It leaves scars on the back. Mm. Um, so he was, he went and had that type of punishment and went into jail. And I couldn't track him after that. All my research, I tried to find out. Here in Wellington. Yeah, he went into the terrorist jail. Um, but I've I've seen um, and there's a, a an address to Her Majesty's prison, which is actually Mount Eden Prison up in Auckland. Um, so he might have been up there for a little while. I'm not quite sure. Or he could have been just naughty when he came back. But regardless, he went into jail, and I've got his death certificate that showed he um, he died in around about 1983 here in Wellington, in Porirua. So he didn't really go far. He must have come out of jail and found work. I think he found work as an engineer, uh, got married, and died of bronchial pneumonia when he was around about 86, 87 years old. Yeah. I don't know, still can't know if he's Māori. He's yeah. buried in Taita. So what am I... I'll, I'll so go to, his yeah, I want to go out to his grave and go and see if I can find any more details, personal details about him, but he's buried in the Taita um, servicemen's cemetery up there. So that's another good thing about being on here is that maybe there are descendants out there that I haven't been able to track because um, he came from quite a large family. I don't think he had any children himself, but he had siblings who would have had children um, and probably some siblings on in, around Gisborne on the East Coast and probably a lot here in Wellington. Again, it's, it's not to say that the shell shock justifies in any sense what happened uh, that that isn't the point of it at all. It's for me the thing is that Roy is showing that these men came back with such horrific scars. There's a tendency to kind of, I suppose, dull down or maybe even romanticise it a little bit about the scars they came back with. But these were deep, ugly, vicious scars that came back from the war. Came back with them. He was only 19 when he came back. He was, I think, 22 when he was on trial, and he had been through all these horrific kind of wars, um, campaigns and war zones, you know, seen terrible things happen and probably done terrible things. And so it's no wonder he came back and did a terrible thing himself because he had spent so many years as a young person with a young mind surrounded by that much horror. Um, and that horror then came back and was inflicted on a little girl you kind of hope, I mean, uh, that's the other thing too, and I've run into people who have memories of, because all the World War I soldiers are now dead, but I run into men, uh, people who are usually in their 60s, who remember working with old vets back in the 50s, 1950s, 1960s, and many of the ones who are described to me are described as alcoholic, um, really either quite weird individuals who lived in men's homes, Back in those days, you know, men's homes were they kind of like boarding houses for men. Violent. Just unable to re-engage back into society. And all the commemorative activity that we do with World War One over the next few years is making space to tell the story of the psychological trauma. You know, it isn't just about the Anzac. It's not just about the poppy. There, are, there would be generational kind of scars because these men came back and afflicted these kinds of things on younger, smaller, more vulnerable people. And those people grew up. What do they do to the next generation? So it's, yeah, the potential for intergenerational trauma is immense. So it'd be interesting, I don't know, 
That's why Roy Delaney, while his story isn't heroic, it it isn't um, romantic, it's still important. On to another quite sad story. Um, this is John McDonald, um, known in Māori as Tiaki Makitanara. His service number was 7 228, and he was a mounted rifle uh, from the Canterbury Mounted Rifles from um, the Nelson Regiment, I think, from Nelson. Um, he was a young man that came from Rangitane, from down Wairau Bar, uh, came from a large family down there. And his family have had a history of service with the Mounted Rifles, um, with the Nelson Mounted Rifles. They landed in, I think they landed in May, May at Gallipoli, yeah, 1915. And um, so they came after the main body and they came as reinforcements, the Mounted Rifles. So if you know the Mounted Rifles, there's infantry who are like the ground soldiers, you know, troops and stuff, but Mounted Rifles were normally on horses. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they were troopers. So back in the day, you know, you'd have troopers who were, they were like, um, yeah, soldiers on horses. That's why they're called mounted rifles. But when they were sent to Gallipoli, they couldn't take their horses, so they were dismounted rifles. That's a joke of the time. <laughs> <laughs> the dismounted rifles. So Tiaki went over to Gallipoli. Now, he was wounded, He um, and he is... Um, memorialised. He was wounded and he died. He actually was wounded. I think he was shot in the abdomen and made his way onto a hospital ship, which is waiting offshore at um, off Gallipoli. So a lot of the men, when they were wounded, they were sent on lighters and sent across to the hospital ships where there were usually nurses and doctors and fairly good medical facilities to triage them. And then a lot of them were either sent back or, or taken to the hospitals in Malta or in Egypt. He unfortunately didn't make it and he died of his wounds and was buried at sea. Um, so there's no known, he's got no known body, um, yes. but his name is memorialised on the Lone Pine Memorial at Gallipoli. You know, it's, it's a fairly generic story in terms of mounted rifles. You know, quite a lot of men have the exact same story. Um, but one of the sad things about Tiaki is when you... I, I actually found him... I, to try and find... These, this, here's an example of the um, Māori men who served under English names or who were, who had English names and didn't actually look really that Māori. Yes. And um, they're really hard to track. So what I would do is that I actually went through about 6,000 images of soldiers from World War One, trying to find any, this is going to sound terrible, but trying to find any that looked remotely Māori. <laughs> Anything. I was like, their lip, their nose, their skin, their hair, something, you know. Um, wow. And that was, yeah, that was a lot of so rifling. Any, and clean would be like, right, I can't put them to this, yeah, in this folder. I'll or hunt them down yeah, and yeah. I'll find them. So I would group them and then just go one by, just one fact by one fact, trying to identify whether or not they were Māori, where they came from, who their people were. I found a letter. So I found his image after rifling through 6,000 images. I thought, he actually looks like one of my nephews, so <laughs> hopefully he's a little bit Māori. So um, found out he indeed he was. But there's also references by other mounted rifles to this young boy from Nelson, a young Māori boy who had been wounded, 
that he was a lovely boy. He actually appears, his name appears in some of the um, mounted rifle diaries and letters by other mounted rifles sent home. So I was curious to try and find him, which I was really glad I did. My tāne helped me find him. So I went after and I went after and found references to him, and I was lucky enough in the Māori newspaper, the Anglican Māori newspaper that was published on the east coast, Te Kōpara, during the time of World War One, they would publish letters home from Māori soldiers, translate them into Māori, and um, there was a beautiful letter that was sent by Tiaki to his parents. So it was in Māori, and um, which is beautiful, but I also got my friend Paura, um Tibble, who works as the Māori writer at Te Papa, to translate it. And the Paura's so clever, he translated it not just into English, but into the English of the period, into nice. early yes. 20th century English. Uh, and it's so beautiful because it just shows the naivety of the boy, the innocence of the boy, so it's to my parents, I am sending these few words you know, to let you know I am alive and well, and well in the, the hope, hope that you, you are all fine too. By the time this letter reaches you, my cobbers and I would have already reached the Dardanelles. It is not long now until our force departs to engage the enemy. I will give my all in fighting for our people. Fighting will be difficult. Be that as it may, that is what we are here for. New Zealand has a name to be proud of made more so by the gallant deeds of our boys, and it is up to us to keep it that way. However, please do not worry about me. You will remember my farewell to you as I left home, and your advice to hold fast to the truths of the good book. I know that your faith of the good book of Jesus Christ will return me home to you. Sitting here, it is our prayer times that I long for. It is not like that here. Being a soldier is not an easy task, but at the same time, what can one do? I would not have it any other way. I believe steadfastly in the truth of the word of God. However, I conclude this letter with the following. May the Lord protect us all through his Holy Spirit. I hope it is included in his divine plan for me to return to my loving parents. May God protect you all. Your loving son, Your loving son Jack, Jack MacDonald. MacDonald. 7th of May, 1915. One of the important things about this, which I think, again, is something that is easy to miss in 100 years after World War One, is the fact that faith and the Bible played such a crucial role in kind of informing the motivations and the actions of these men. I, th I think a lot of us, myself included, um, it's difficult for us to kind of step into that type of mindset about how important faith was to them. But there's a lovely PS, a little postscript that he adds to this letter, which kind of shows how innocent he was. <laughs> Probably a little bit of a goody two-shoes too. PS, I must tell you that I am the only man in my platoon who does not drink alcohol. I am still keeping my promise. I will not partake of alcohol or tobacco. My wish is to stay true to my values. And then when I contacted Tiaki's um, descendants, I went through the, um, the Rangitani Authority down in Wairo, down in Blenheim, asking if I could make contact with any descendants of um, Tiaki Makitanara or John MacDonald. 
and they got me in touch with Richard Bradley, who is a descendant, I think a great-grandnephew of Tiaki. And he told me quite a lovely story that his mother never really spoke about him. His parents never really spoke about Tiaki. I think the the grief was so much that I think to speak about it just becomes too much. But what they did do is um, named their daughter Dardanelles, and she was always known as Dardy, I think. And there was another child who was named Anzac. So while, again, the trauma of loss might have been too much to bear, you memorialise that loss and that absence by naming someone, which is a very Māori thing to do. But when you look at lists of soldiers who went away to World War II, Pākehā and Māori, a lot of them were named after events, battlefields, campaigns, towns, ships of World War One. I think Heita Tukitero nga kōrero hōhonu pua wai kens. Curate the Papa Tongariwa. Thank you so much. Kia ora. Kia ora.